Welcome football fans. Buckle up for another hard-hitting episode of Player 54 Podcast, a show focused solely on the XFL. From a sunny Southwest Florida studio, here's your host, Michael Lathrop. Hello, football fans. This is episode 63, Trey and Tom Lugendon. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Royal Retros by 503 Sports. Royal Retros are the king of throwbacks. Royal Retros by 503 Sports provides a line of merchandise from legendary defunct leagues such as the XFL 1.0. If you've always wanted to get yourself a quality Las Vegas Outlaws He Hate Me or Los Angeles Extreme Tommy Maddox jersey, perhaps even an OG XFL's team's t-shirt, we have you covered. Simply click on the link provided in the show's description and notes and enter the code Let's Talk XFL at checkout to receive 10% off your purchase. We are less than three weeks to kick off. As usual, this week we have more XFL developments to cover. In addition, we have a fantastic interview. Later in the show, I will be joined by ESPN analyst and former Los Angeles Extreme quarterback coach Tom Luganville to discuss his unique ties to each of the XFL iterations and more. But first, we have those developments to cover. So, let's get to it. On January 23rd, the XFL announced a trade between the Houston Roughnecks and the San Antonio Brahmas. Per the XFL communications team, the Roughnecks received cornerback Kerry Vincent, and the Brahmas received wide receiver Darice Robinson. Then, on January 25th, the XFL held its previously scheduled press conference at Camping World Stadium in Orlando, Florida. Essentially, the event was an official announcement of the Orlando Guardians to the community. No major news announcements or unveilings were included. Then, on January 26th, the XFL announced its partnership with Virtual Tables. Per the press release, Virtual Tables is the leader in providing virtual venues of fandom and will incorporate their DigiSign product into the XFL's fan engagement offerings. Using DigiSign, the league and Virtual Tables will create a set of exclusive fan events that will allow participants to engage with players and coaches in either a one-on-one or group experience. These unique meet-and-greet experiences will feature virtual autographs and personalized digital keepsakes with participation from players and coaches from all eight teams. Virtual Tables have partnered with organizations in more than 30 countries, with DigiSign giving a -a one-of-a-kind digital collectible and memory that expands beyond the traditional fan experience. Fans can instantly share the collectible on their social media channels, showcasing their experience for everyone to see. Then, on January 28th, the XFL announced two trades. Per the XFL communications team, First, between the Houston Roughnecks and D.C. Defenders. The Roughnecks received offensive lineman Sam Cooper, and the Defenders received linebacker Caleb Bryce. Second, between the Seattle Sea Dragons and the St. Louis Battlehawks. The Sea Dragons received offensive tackle Kai Abisher, and the Battlehawks received tight end Charlie Tamupu. As a disclaimer, it appears the league mistakenly tagged each of these players with the reverse teams. We decided to report it as the league's press releases stated them, but with this disclaimer. Also, on January 28th, 
the Arlington Renegades held an open practice. According to posts from Renegades Roundup co-host Zach Arnold and XFL News Hub's Anthony Miller and those threads, approximately 150 to 200 people were in attendance. As I have previously mentioned, I will now be joined by ESPN analyst and former Los Angeles Extreme quarterback coach Tom Luganville to discuss his unique ties to each of the XFL iterations and more. Welcome, Tom. I appreciate you taking the time to come on to the show, discuss your ESPN broadcast inclusion for the upcoming season and your unique ties to each iteration of the XFL. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. I know I, I, I was starting to think the other day, I'm like, all right, 2001, and then it's 2023, and I just can't believe it was that long ago. And, and, and to be honest with you, I can't believe the 2.0 version. I mean, I can, I can vividly remember. We were at Houston. Everything was just starting to come out about this, you know, coronavirus thing. And I remember when the game was over, we had a great game. Game's over, and they're driving us to the airport. It's me, Steve Levy, and Diana Rossini, and Greg McElroy. And at the time, Greg and I were on the same college football broadcasting crew. Gotcha. And Steve Levy says in the car, he goes, you think they're going to pull us off of this thing? And we looked at him. We're like, no. It's the flu, right? So the next week, we're supposed to go to New York. And all of a sudden, we had this emergency meeting on like a Tuesday. I think the game was Saturday. And they had just started talking about having like a 30-day like uh, quarantine potentially in New York and in New Jersey. So our folks at ESPN, you know, get us on the call. And they're saying, listen, you know, what do you want to do? Are you Are you comfortable going? Broadcasting the game, are you comfortable being out there in public and the whole nine yards? And every one of us was like, yeah, no big deal. We want to go do the game. What we don't want to do is go do the game and then all of a sudden get stuck there for 30 days and we can't leave. That was like our only reservation. So we get off the call and and, and our bosses are like, you know, fair enough. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll plan accordingly going ahead unless something happens. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead with the, with the game. And that was a Tuesday. On Thursday, the league called it quits on that on like prior to that New York game. And, you know, I tell you, Mike, the thing that was for somebody in my position who had experienced the highs and lows and the goods and the bads of the first iteration. And to see what in five weeks that thing was starting to become. If it hadn't have been for the pandemic, that thing would be rolling right now. And it would be in a great spot. And I'm really hoping that that's where we ultimately get, uh, you know, to here, you know, for a third time. When you have a good thing and it gets stripped away from you, however it happens, right? There's life mm-hmm. can throw curveballs in ways we cannot fathom. And that was not fathomed by anybody other than no. who's like Dr. Fauci and whatnot. And, you know, we won't get into yeah. all that. But, you know, had been talking about that for years, about these uh, huge global pandemics. So, you know, I think it's important. We'll kind of rewind it here a little bit because we just jumped right into it. And, um, you know, there's been so much time, like you mentioned, from that 2000 startup before they kicked off in 2001 to where we are today. And obviously there's just younger fans that probably have no idea that you had any ties to the initial version that Vince McMahon started back at the turn of the, you know, the millennium. 
Yeah. So, you know, why don't yeah. why don't we just dive down into that a little bit? And uh, okay. you know, why don't you share? I mean, you played for three different universities before you you turned pro, but you yourself have a very I say solid resume for alternative football as a player before you sure. shifted to the coaching ranks. But why don't you just kind of walk us through how you got to where you are? You know, like you just didn't become yeah. an analyst overnight. So why don't you sure. kind of walk us through so our younger fans and listeners have an, an understanding of who you are? Yeah, yeah, no problem. So, you know, I'll be uh, I'm on the verge of completing my 18th year at ESPN. But for the 11 years prior to me joining an ES, joining ESPN, I was actually in the coaching and scouting profession. And, you know, you referenced supplemental leagues. At that time, it was the Arena Football League was really at the height of its of probably its popularity. NFL Europe, uh, which I had been involved with at Amsterdam. Um, Arena Football 2, I was the, the head coach of an expansion franchise in that league when I was 25 years old. And then the XFL rolls around and I become the quarterback's coach at Los Angeles in, in, the, in the first iteration. And, you know, it, it's interesting. And then after, by the way, after the league folded, I then went to work for the Dallas Cowboys and I was you know, serving two roles. I was in pro personnel for the Cowboys during the season and during the off season, I was running Jerry Jones's arena football team at the time, the Dallas Des- Desperados. And so you're right. As, as a player, I played for two, uh, two years in, in the Arena Football League. Um, my first coaching experience was quality control with NFL Europe. I was always heavily involved in player personnel. And the one thing about some of those leagues, or really all of those leagues, that I loved so much was the coaches were the cooks in the kitchen. All right. You didn't have a personnel department and then the coaching staff and either – collaboration or infighting or disagreements. You didn't have somebody in a suit and tie walking into your office saying, Hey, we're trading so-and-so and so-and-so for this guy. All right. You didn't have anybody saying we've got to cut so-and-so. The reason why I liked that is in the most bottom line profession, which I think is the coaching profession really of any sport, but from my experience, uh, football is I can handle being fired. All right. Or, being demoted or what have you, if I was the main culprit in creating the problem, right? So as a coach, your ultimate nirvana is to be able to not only coach the X's and O's and to lead and to build a team and and have a blueprint and a foundation, but it's to make the personnel choices. Because ultimately at the end of the day, and Bill Parcells, I think used to put it in grocery store terms. He he would say, "If, if you're expecting me to make the dinner, then you need to allow me to buy the groceries, you know, or I, I choose the that. groceries. Yeah, you know, and and that's not always the case, particularly in pro football. Um, in college football, the coaches are doing the evaluating. I mean, you have a personnel staff and you have all of this and that, but ultimately the coaches are making the final decision on who they're going to recruit, who they're going to offer, and then they're actively going and doing it. It's not always that way in, in the National Football League. In some places it is. But in these supplemental leagues, that's the only way it is. And um, to me, I loved that. So one of my main roles the first time in the XFL is I was the quarterback's coach and I was also uh, director of player personnel. I was really involved in draft preparation, player evaluation, because at that time, and again, that was different now then than it is now in the sense that when the XFL came around in 2001, the NFL Europe was starting to phase out, 
The guys were not making very good money, and it had turned into what was called an allocation league, meaning that the vast majority of the players that were being sent over there were being allocated by an NFL team to an NFL Europe team. It went from, at the beginning of NFL Europe in 1995, for the first four, five, six years, you had an open draft, just like the XFL does, right? And then you had a small section of your roster that was actually allocated. So, for example, when my dad was the head coach at Amsterdam, he had to go get somebody to sign Kurt Warner and have him allocated to Amsterdam, all right? But most of the guys that you built your roster around, you were doing through player evaluation, film study, and you were having an open draft. So you knew that if you did a good job in player evaluation, and obviously you got to stay healthy and things of that nature, but if you knew you did a good job in that area, you had a real chance to be successful during the season, and you didn't have all the other hands in the cookie jar messing with it. Well, the first iteration of the XFL was no different, and the timing couldn't have been better because the XFL was going to pay more than the CFL. They were going to pay outside of a handful of players you know, that, that, that were playing in the CFL at the time. They were going to pay far better than NFL Europe, and they were going to pay better than the Arena Football League. So now, outside of the National Football League, every single great player, professional football player that was not on an NFL roster, essentially wanted to play in one league, and that was the XFL. So our access to talent and the broad pool was vast. And with so many of us on that staff that had been in the Arena Football League as a player or coach or who had uh, coached in NFL Europe, we kind of had a head start because we knew who the players are. Like, so, for example, and I'm, I'm, I'm not using this person as an example because he didn't do a good job, but a guy like Jerry DiNardo, who was Birmingham's coach, he comes into that league from college, right? And everything's brand new. Everything's foreign in terms of putting together the roster. Uh, draft preparation, whereas somebody like Galen Hall or Jim Kreiner, who was at Vegas and Galen was in Orlando, or somebody like my dad, they had been through all of that. They knew how to do all this, and it gave. And, and it's interesting because if you look at the best teams, it was basically Orlando, L.A., Vegas, and San Francisco, and there was a reason for that. I really got into just enjoying the the draft prep part of it. And so what was interesting, I got a funny story about how this whole thing played out and it's a shame that it never got to move forward. So we knew coming out of the, you had two drafts and we knew coming out of the draft that we had done a pretty good job. We felt good about our personnel and we could tell on paper that there were going to be some other teams that were going to get into training camp and might go, uh-oh, we've made a mistake. So <laughs> I'll never forget this. We are in training camp. We're two to three weeks in. And I think Chicago, New York, somebody else call us, and they want to make a trade. And – our answer was, we're more than willing to make a trade, but we will. We don't want a player off of your roster. We want your draft picks. Hmm. So what we did, we ended up getting three first-round draft choices for the following year's draft during training camp before the season even started, right? Oh. So now fast forward to the end of that. 
we win the XFL championship. Yeah. So the way the draft worked, it was it was serpentine, one through eight, eight through one, one through eight, eight through one. So here we are. We're going to have the last pick of the first round because we won the championship. But we're also going to have the first pick of the second round because it's serpentine. But we also had three other teams' first round picks, which would have been going into the 20, 2002 season or draft. So we would have won the championship, had the MVP of the league at quarterback, and four first round draft choices in the first pick of the second round. And we were just, I mean, as a staff, we couldn't have been, we were tickled to death, right? And so um, the experience was great, man. I mean, I, I, you know, whether it was Tommy Maddox, Scott Milanovic, I remember we had, um, we had a three quarterback workout um, in Long Beach, California. It was Tommy Maddox, Scott Milanovic, and Steve Sarkeesian. And Sark and I, had played against each other in junior college. We were Southern California junior college products. We'd known each other forever. He, we end up, uh, we don't draft him. He ends up going to Canada for one year and then becoming a GA for Norm Chow at SC. And obviously the, the rest is history. Um, and at that time, if you remember, and I don't think they've done it this way with either the second iteration or 3.0 coming up, is you had territorial schools to try to create local flavor and local interest. So for example, in Los Angeles, SC, UCLA, San Diego state, I think Stanford and Cal were our territorial schools as LA's franchise. Meaning that if we wanted somebody from those schools, they got pulled out of the draft pool and got assigned to us. So Tommy Maddox, for example, once we researched him and worked him out and got all that out of the way, we could make a decision, all right, let him go into the pool or pull him out, all right? So that obviously worked out in our favor. He ended up becoming the MVP of the league. But um, so just from the, the, you know, the, I think, and I know I'm probably droning on here and stop me if, you have, if you've got a question at any point, but what I always tell people that ask me about that, about that league, is the only thing they really truly got wrong and I, and I say this, and I feel very strongly about this, was the presentation of the league as it was broadcasted. The in-game experience, the exit polls, it was a phenomenal in-game experience. It was like an outdoor rock concert with a football game going on. And all of the access, I mean, if you remember, the Skycam debuted in that league, and it was ripped by everybody. The next year, it's on Monday Night Football, and it's the greatest thing since pocket t-shirts, right? So it was one of those deals where I fast forward to the second time, and all of the things they did wrong, they corrected from the broadcast television side. I mean, really did. If you watch 2.0 and how the rules were set up, the access how, uh, you know, having legitimate professional broadcasters, not, you know, ex-pro wrestlers or ex-wrestlers, you know, all of those things that they knew they got wrong from a presentation standpoint was right. But I challenge people who say, oh, the football was bad. It wasn't bad. We had guys on our roster with Super Bowl rings. We had, we had guys on our roster that had been on NFL rosters for three, four, five, sometimes six years, guys that were salary cap casualties, you know, and there were a bunch of other teams in that league that played with the same caliber guy, but how it was presented on television 
doomed it. And that, that was a shame because if you were involved in it and you were in the day-to-day, it was all football. It wasn't wrestling. It wasn't a gimmick. Now we had unique rules. We had different things, and but that was fun. Like it was fun having a forward receiver motion. Like that, it was, it was fun. And this was back before player safety, obviously. I don't know if you remember in the first, the first version, it was a penalty to call for a fair catch. Right. No, I recall that was the big marketing ploy when they had that cannonball coming through that, you know, it's kind of like, this is going to be a manly league. There is no fair catch. It's going to be, you know, rough. And so, I mean, yes, that violence collisions was in college watching the first iteration. So, yeah, I, I mean, like I understand the younger people don't know unless they've watched the, this was the XFL documentary, but like for the most part, yeah, I remember. I enjoyed the football. So I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. Other than maybe the first week, maybe because shorting, uh, training camps and stuff were too short. But for the most part, it, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I'll tell you, it was – and it wasn't the league's fault because they went after markets for that opening weekend, and they still got on 11, I think, for the New York and Vegas game. problem is they picked two teams that weren't very good. But they had no way of knowing that at the time. You know, their perspective in terms of the approach was probably dead on uh, with because of the markets that they were wanting to get to tune in. And it worked. That part of it worked. But it didn't give off the best impression of who the the better teams were, you know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just the collisions. Not only was it a penalty of fair catch, it was a penalty of punted out of bounds. The the punting team would get, would get uh, you know, penalized. And so, you know, the whole – Funny story. I don't know if a lot of people know that, but do you remember the scramble? Yes. People got okay. brutally like dislocated shoulders and stuff doing that. I recall okay. that. Yeah. The first game, the best player on Orlando's defense completely tears his re- rotator cuff, complete like shoulder repair, never played football again. And the next week, Vince says, All right, we're going to let you guys dress one extra player so you can designate somebody to be the scramble guy. And that way you're not down somebody because you had a 45 man roster, but you only dressed 37. So they let us dress an extra guy to hopefully avoid happening to that. But, you know, again, a lot of this, so much of this was trial and error, right? I mean, it was, I mean, think about it. Think about the steady cam, the steady cams at every sporting event there is now, right? That started in the XFL. The guy was running around, looked like he's playing the cross, right? You had, the cameras, what had been done in the old world league, but you had the the mic stuff. You had the in helmet conversations. You know, remember the cheerleaders in the hot tub, and you know the big, huge scoreboards and all of these things. I mean, it was just, it was so much fun, man. I mean, and it really, really was. And um, you know, and the documentary is 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 fun. I mean, it it is fun, and I and I understand that it didn't work. It didn't mean it didn't have a lot of positives too, though. Well, obviously it did. And then, you know, yeah. we watched that documentary and they get the very end of it. When Vince McMahon is kind of just talking with, uh, Ebersol about, yeah. you know, would you ever do it again? You know, Oh, you know, I, you know, I thought about it, you know, I just, it'd have to be right. And all that type of stuff. There obviously were right things or else you wouldn't entertain that unless it's just mm-hmm. an ego thing. Like, well, I couldn't have been wrong. You know, I'll give mm-hmm. it another shot, but, Smart enough to see where his mistakes were. Mm-hmm. He went and got legitimate people throughout sports the last yeah. time around in 2020. Fox and ESPN, yeah. Right. In, I mean, like, if you just look at the people that are putting it together, rule innovations. Like, this has been a league of innovation. 
yeah. no doubt, like like you were saying with the cameras and whatnot. But here we saw new kickoffs, shorter play clocks to shorten the game, yeah. and, you know, just to keep things rolling. And it because, like, attention it And it was people fell in love with it. 100%. I mean, obviously I'm here and I started a podcast for the third iteration because it was so good. I'm like, it, it can't fail. It right. can't. It was just a pandemic. The oddest. It was. It wouldn't have failed. It would not have failed. And again, I don't think the first one would have failed either had they had a different broadcast television profession. Because the beauty of it in the first and in, in, in 2.0 is the same. And so will this. It was a single entity structure. And it was set up, it was basically set up so that nobody from an ownership standpoint could attempt to do what Donald Trump attempted to do with the New Jersey Generals. Buy all the best players, put together the best team, and then everybody else fails. Well, in doing that, you had the league owned all the teams. You had general managers, head coaches, director of football operations, you know, you can run on the list. All the salaries were the same, and the only thing you got paid more to do was win. I mean, that's the American way, right? I mean, it was, and, and let me tell you something. When those guys got those checks on a Tuesday after a loss, there wouldn't have, you didn't have no hard time motivating guys for the next week because it was hefty. I mean, it was a, it was a, and it made a difference. And so, yeah, there were so many things that were right. And, you know, you referenced something that's, that we didn't do in the first time, but we, we did do in the second time. And I think it was really, really smart. And I, and I think it helped this particular aspect of the sport of football overall. And that is allowing the curtain to be pulled back on officials' reviews. Now, initially, officials and that whole community, I think, were really pushing back because they saw it as threatening and they saw it as an, an excess layer of being able to be exposed. And what ended up happening it created empathy because all of a sudden the fan who thinks it's so black and white is hearing the replay official in the booth with a camera behind them, looking at the variety of screens that they're examining, talking to the on-field official and literally dissecting the, the rule to the letter of the law. And what it did is it created an entirely different perspective. And I think a healthy respect for how hard the job is as an official. You know, we've all seen a call where we're like, how did they, how did they overturn that? Well, What's a catch, right? The most basic of premises that we see yes. a major problem in the National Football League over and over. And we've seen big games, whether it's been playoff games or just, you know, or deciding moments late in a game, or we're just like, how does that happen? Well, you're right. We get to see the yeah. layers of this onion and you start to peel back, right. like, oh, that curtain, that, you know, there's just so much more to it. It's not just like, okay, it's just. Yeah, and then, the, and then the fan goes, okay, maybe I need to be, be a little bit more easy on these guys. Or maybe it's not. And that's generally the, the case when you're a fan and you're, you know, you're viewing something that you have passion about, but you're really not dialed into, you know. And so I thought that really helped the officials cause. I thought it made them look vulnerable, but at the same time like true experts because they have a very difficult job to do. And then we were relaying that to the fan word for word, frame by frame. I also loved the, the three different opportunities to go for one, two or three after the touchdown, that's going to stay around. We're doing that uh, this time around as well. So again, you're right. So innovative, smart, 
Everybody complains about the length of the games. Everybody complains about the length of, of reviews. You know, the clock and how they operated the clock, how they utilized it. I mean, shoot, man, Mike, we got those games done in two and a half hours, sometimes 240 at the most, at the most. So it's fast paced. It's going. There's urgency because the players and the teams and the coaches now know, okay, we don't have all day long to sit around here and and try and do this. So, yeah, a lot of positives that I think will will spill over. So they're going to tweak it a little bit. I've had Dean Blandino on the show twice Mm -hmm. talking about it before these new rule changes came in, which wasn't all that many for this time around. They are going to alter the play the kickoff rule, the kickoff and the kickoff return rule will stay the same. That's the biggest visual difference to the game of football that the fans will see. But as far as speed, you know, the one thing I asked Dean, I'm like, well, how did we come to this idea of increasing the play clock? Because the one thing that people I won't say the one thing. There are a lot of things, but I, I think one yeah. of the major things that people really gravitated towards was that shorter play clock and this, the up tempo speed of the game. Yeah, and he actually just happened to say, "Well, Mike, you know what you don't realize is when it's placed is when the clock starts. So it was the you know the extra potential seven seconds that the ball spot right. was already using. But when you factor it in, we're really right within line with that. Now we're just going to have it's going to be the same thing. So like." Anybody that kind of thinks it's going to be longer, not really. They added an extra timeout this time around because mm-hmm. back in 2020, they had two per half. They're going to go with three. Yeah. But like Dean says, it's probably going to give us better games for it. You know, their mm-hmm. coaches are going to be able to have a better fuel and be able to time manage a little bit better. So, yeah, you know, not everything's a loss, but it's still innovative. It's not NFL sure. rules. You know, even though we're, they're tweaking things, they haven't gone back to whatever the default that everyone's so used to with the National Football League. So, I mean, right. yeah, innovation has been a big part. And I think that's what draws a lot of hardcore fans to the XFL. And not to bash other leagues, because there are plenty of them now, which sure. really didn't exist 20 years ago. You had one league, but once one folded, maybe another one start up to kind of try to fill its yeah. spot. But now we have a plethora of arena leagues and now you know with the usfl and xfl and you know for a moment it looks like we're gonna have the major league football league and who knows what happens with that but now is a good time to be a player but like you said it's getting all those players right digging in yeah. making the you know bringing it in and we'll have to see you know having guys like bob stoops and you know that now he's not a rookie to the professional game anymore he only had right. five games but whatever he did and we see a pretty interesting approach to how he and the Hayes brothers built mm-hmm. that roster this time around. A lot more of, well, you say supplemental league. I use the term alternative football. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. tomato, tomato. But yeah, he's going more with experience, which kind of makes sense. You know, looking at it, I think that's one of the teams that are going to be a favorite. I think them in the Vegas. Now, a lot of people are, are, are thinking very high on um, DC defenders. So for a quick second, let's just fast forward. You're an analyst now, right? You're doing Mm -hmm. all sorts of broadcasts, college, you know, XFL back in 2020. Obviously you're going to be back as an analyst here in 2023. Let's just take a moment and look at some of these teams. What are you seeing with the coaching staffs that have been put together? What are you seeing with the rosters that nothing's finalized? You know, they're still in camp, but what are you seeing that you think, okay, these are my front runners. These are my <laughs> kind of uh, dark horses, so to speak. 
I got to be honest with you, I don't have any answer to that yet. I really don't. And the reason why I say that is because I don't know yet what the percentage blend is going to be of teams that have guys who've played a lot of professional football. Whether And when I say a lot of professional football, there are a lot of players out there that let's just say were on two different training camp rosters, made it to the last cut, got cut both times. Then the third year, they make the practice squad. Then all of a sudden, they make an active roster for a year, but then they get cut again. You're still playing a lot of football. You're an entirely different guy than the guy that's two years removed from college, signed a free agent contract, and never made it. There has to be some happy medium of a blend there. You can't be too young and inexperienced because I think you're you're just not going to have enough guys that have been through getting cut, disappointment, you know, having a chip on their shoulder, an appreciation for how hard it is to make a roster. That matters when you're talking about these these types of leagues. And then ultimately, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to who has the best quarterback. And to me, whoever Jordan Taumau, the kid from Old Miss, is playing for. Um, can you, do you even know it off the top of your hand? I know he was, um, he's in the uh, same quarterback carousel with the DC defenders as we got, uh, Eric Dungy, uh, Derek and, King. Uh, Derek King. Correct. And Derek so King. it's, it's right. those three. So those three, that might be three of the better quarterbacks in the league on one team. And, you know, it's interesting because it reminds me what we did in the XFL. We had Tommy Maddox. As our territorial guy, right? Which means he got pulled out of the draft. We didn't have to draft him. He was on our roster. You know what we did with the first pick of the old in the first round? We took Scott Milanovic. Because we were not going to be left without a quarterback in that league. And that's the whole thing. And these coaches now, whether it's Bob at, uh, at Arlington, you know, even got some of the guys that are coming straight from being a player. I mean, Anthony Beck was a colleague of mine for years as a broadcaster, one of the greatest dudes in the world. And they're all trying to do this for the first time. You know, we've got a lot of first-time coaches in this. And and I hope for their sake that they prioritized that position because so much balance will be at play at the other positions in the sense that a lot of these players are going to be very similar in skill set, right? They're going to have a lot of the same deficiencies. But if you hit on a quarterback, it's almost (laughs) – I don't know if people will understand this um, comparison I'm going to make, but – uh, during midweek maction in college football, right? I'm sure you watch midweek maction with, you know, Miami of Ohio and Eastern Michigan and all this and that. I've done those games for 15 years now. And I've always said in my prep of those games and study on those games and you watch them on film, all of those teams are exactly the same. They're playing with the same level of talent. The guy that didn't quite have that Big Ten offer, right? They're all the same guy. You could change all the uniforms of all the teams in the MAC, and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between any of them except for the quarterback. And if you look at history in that league, whatever it was a two year run, a three year run, a four year run, when Central Michigan had Dan LeFevre, they were the best team in the league. When Roethlisberger was at Miami of Ohio, they were the best team in the league. When Marshall had Pennington and, and Leftwich, they were the best team in the league. Grodkowski at Toledo. I could go on Chandler Harnish and Jordan Lynch at Northern uh, Illinois, best team in the league, because everything else is so equitable. And I, and I feel like we're going to see a lot of parity, which is great. 
because it's going to make for really good competitive football games that I think will go, you know, deep into the fourth quarter. We hope, obviously, that's what we want to have. Um, but I thought at the end of the five weeks of 2.0, I thought Jordan was the best player at quarterback that was emerging to be a potential star. Like I think I, he was on the verge of maybe taking uh, the next step. So I, I do think that the quarterback position, as we get to final cuts, I feel like I'll have a fairly good feel of looking at the quarterback position across the board and being able to more accurately answer the question you just asked when I know who those guys are officially. I knew it was early. I just know that's yeah. what everyone's asked. You know, oh, every no, time I, I get, get the it. DMs, I get, get DM and I'm it. like, I'm not an analyst. You know, I'm yeah. a fan. Well, here, you know? here's the thing. Here's the thing, too. And, and for the fans of this, you know, one of the issues with these types of leagues is you don't have preseason games, right? You are all in one location to have training camp, which is great. And NFL Europe was the same way. Uh, XFL 1.0 was the same way. You had the, the four teams that were in the East. All were stationed in Orlando and the four teams that were in the West, we all had training camp in Vegas and you had your camp. And back then you had your two days, you know, all this and that, but you would scrimmage against, you'd set up little inner squad scrimmages, but you don't get two full blown go at it or three or four before the live bolts start flying by and the game counts. Right. And that is another reason why the quarterback position is so critical because you might not be where you want to be or where you think you're going to be in week one, week two, week three. But if you have a quarterback, that's a huge advantage because it can mask the other things while you're trying to come along slowly. And again, when you have a four, four and a half, maybe I don't even know if training camps five weeks and you're taking a roster. Um, and we really haven't talked about roster numbers. When I say we, us as broadcasters, ESPN and the league of, what they're exactly going to allow in terms of all right, active practice squad, inactive, all of those sorts of things. But you're still bringing in, I think the first time around we brought in between 50 and 60, had to whittle it down to 37 with a an 18 practice squad. Those are tough decisions to make in four weeks because it's you're not in camp for six or seven weeks. You don't have four preseason games to see these guys and then study them. You're almost having to make your decisions on a day-to-day basis, not necessarily cumulative at the very, very end of camp. Every day matters in these leagues. You're talking about that window, that short, that month, essentially, is what you have. Mm -hmm. We get it. These are startups, whether it's the XFL, whether it's the USFL. Everyone's trying to make sure the money's going to be right, not overspend, whether it's on payroll for staff, players, the venues, you know, now we're looking at these hubs, whether they're a semi hub, whether they're a full blown hub. So now they have all the hotel, you know, all that meals. Sure. The list goes yeah. on and on. Is this maybe something that these alternative leagues or supplemental leagues need to yeah. take a look at expanding for the quality of football we get to see on week one? Would it be just wise to spend that little extra money for an extra two weeks, three weeks to expand it? so that they get more time with these players and they can maybe have a preseason game or two preseason games before they make those final cuts. Would that make more sense? I mean, you're a football guy, right? You're not a yeah. fan. I mean, you've been in it as a coach. I mean, now you've yeah. seen it as a, an analyst on, but I mean, 
you've been through this, you've seen different iterations. What, what makes sense? I think you could get away with four to five weeks if you had two full-blown live preseason games, even if you didn't televise them, right? Um, you could televise them, but even if you didn't, but you didn't, you weren't protecting the quarterback. The problem is the coaches are going to go nuts because they don't want to have something happen, right? Before you hit week one, if you start having live quarterbacks and you, and you're in your practice in a full blown deal. And, 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 and unlike the NFL, it's not like you can sit your guys, right? Every one of these people are fighting and scrapping to make a roster spot. And in order to make the decisions you got to make, guess what? You got to play them and you got to play them a lot of snaps. That would be difficult for coaches to swallow because number one, you want to protect guys. That's your natural inclination. I mean, when you get in the last three preseason games of the NFL or whatever, you know, Tom Brady ain't playing many snaps, if any, you know, Josh Allen isn't playing many snaps, if any, in these types of scenarios, they'd have to play all the snaps. It's the only way to be able to make an accurate determination of not only being fair to the player, but to feel like you've got enough of a sample size to make good decisions when it comes down to final cuts. So what I would probably say is if you're going to avoid if you're if if you're not going to go that path of preseason games or preseason live scrimmages, maybe add a week, you know, maybe add an extra 10 days to keep them on the field, extend the last cut further or deeper in into camp just to hopefully ensure that you feel like you know you've you've made good choices and and listen i can guarantee you because i re- i remember vividly and i briefly touched on this with with teens these teams right now they know if they've made some mistakes somewhere not just a quarterback but in the offensive line particularly that's going to be the most difficult position to bring together to gel to be a cohesive productive unit and it will be the position that probably has the most mistakes, I would say, in the first half of the season. Now, from a rules perspective, and I haven't dove deep into the weeds here, but I know, you know, NFL Europe, for example, they had blitz rules, right? I think we we did have a few rules. They weren't as stringent in, as NFL Europe. But we did have a few rules, and it was intended to, number one, protect the offensive line, but ultimately protect the quarterback. Because if you're going to sit there and you're going to bring six guys on every snap and the offensive line's overwhelmed, your quarterback's going to get killed. And you can't have that. So um, I think that's a that's a difficult position uh, to bring along and, and project. And ironically, it's, it's interesting, My our center in Los Angeles in 2001 – was the offensive line coach at Tampa Bay in 2020 and is now the offensive line coach, I want to say, might be Arlington. Um, his name is Jonathan Heinbach. So he's, he's with the Renegades. Yeah, so Heinbach's been around. He's played it. He knows it. He knows how difficult it is to do. You know, what I have found, we really did. Our offensive coordinator at the time was Jim Barker in Los Angeles. And Jim had come over to us from the Canadian Football League. He was Doug Flutie's coach for a number of years. So he comes down from Canada. Our offensive line coach was maybe one of the best football coaches I've ever been around. I probably learned more from him than I have from anybody I've been around in the game. His name was Dave Levy. Now, Dave Levy at that time was in his late 60s. He's still alive today. 
He was uh, on John McKay's staff at USC when they won four national championships. As a paid coach throughout his career, he has been a paid coach at every position on the football field for somebody. Can you imagine that? Wow. He then went on to become the offensive line for uh, coach for Don Coriel during the Air Coriel uh, days of the Chargers with, with Dan Fouts and those guys. Then he eventually, his last stop in the NFL was as the running backs coach for Wayne Fonts at uh, Detroit. He was Barry Sanders' running backs coach. And, and I learned this all as, a, as a young coach. And we were in a staff meeting one time. And our offensive coordinator and our, and our offensive line coach, Dave Levy, they said, the simpler we make things and the less we complicate things, the more ready we will be on week one. The more we'll be able to do, for example, things like verbiage. The less verbiage we have, all right, the more we ask guys to do. Doesn't mean that you can't get creative, doesn't mean that you can't scheme people up and create matchups, but the less we ask people to think, we are going to be ahead of others. And we looked at it that from that perspective because we didn't have preseason games, right? We wanted them to play fast, we wanted them to play confident, and we knew we couldn't get a lot out of them if they were thinking all the time and you know like for example like our verbiage on offense it might have been three total words at most sometimes it was two right but it was that was intentional so i think you know with the teams now no preseason games shortness of training camp the more they simplify it's not about plays it's about players so we can sit here and have four running plays. I remember Dave Levy telling me when they were with the Chargers, I mean, this is Eric Coriel. He goes, we had eight to 10 pass concepts. We had about five running plays. But what we did is we did everything out of a gazillion formations, personnel groupings, motions, and shifts. But we didn't have a lot of plays. So what we did, we did really, really well. And I think that approach and in this type of alternative supplemental league is really, really important so that you can hit the ground running week one. So we've had our taste. Here we are. We're talking about how we thought it was going to be successful. Mm-hmm. You're in the booth. When or sideline, heck, you've been, you know, you've been everywhere. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm in the booth this time. I was the right. sideline analyst last time. Yeah. I'm like, well, you're in the booth this time, but technically, yes. I mean, you you've been everywhere. We have so much more competition now, as as I mentioned with all these leagues. It's great for coaches, it's great for players. Heck, it's even great for fans that are just looking for more football. It's jobs. Right. Jobs. Right? It's, it's an ecosystem, it's right? Just more jobs, yeah. more opportunity for these guys to either just keep playing the game they love or their keeps their dream alive. Absolutely. With that, now we do have competition. Mm-hmm. Right? There's only going to be a little bit of overlap between the XFL, the USFL. Yeah. In your mind, is it possible for everyone to have a piece of the pie and still survive? We've seen all the USFL get the season two. They're going to kick off. Mm-hmm. Is the XFL by delaying from 2022 to 2023? Is that going to be kind of a, a knock against it, or do you just think there's actually enough here? From what you've what you've seen, from I mean, you're you've got a a very good pulse yeah. from being all over the country. I mean, you're right in the sport. So, I mean, I'm a fan. What do you think? 
there's more than enough in terms of the caliber of player that you need for it to be sustainable. Right. I mean, when, if we're if we're going to look at this from a pure percentages standpoint, not to get too deep in the weeds, but I deal with this in my world of recruiting. It's another part of my my job here at ESPN. The last 18 years is recruiting and player evaluation. And, you know, oftentimes, whether it's parents, whether it's 16 year old kids, whether it's 23 year old seniors in college. I don't think anybody really, truly realizes that the percentage of a player that will make an opening day NFL roster is like 0.04%, right? Or 0.05% of the entire college football playing population, not just power five, group or five, but FCS, division two, division three, all of it. All right. Well, that means there, and, and, and when you put it in this perspective, think about it this way, that means that there are first team, all SEC players, that will not be playing in the NFL. There are first team all Big Ten players. There are second team all Americans, all right, that will not be playing in the NFL. And there's far more of those guys than there are the ones that are going to play in the NFL. So from an availability standpoint, absolutely there's enough space for both of it. You know, the one thing, and I understand it from a cost measure, and I get that because listen, I'm I've known this being a part of the Arena Football League being a part of arena football too, NFL Europe and the XFL as a coach player or broadcaster in all of those, you cannot survive without television revenue. Everything's based on television revenue. So when the USL USFL decided to take the approach that they were going to house all the teams in one area and then play all their games in that one stadium in Birmingham, I see it and I get it. I think the, the year the year lapse between that and the XFL, I think the XFL realized one thing. We still have to have local fans that care about the team. We can house them and we can cost measure and we can save. We can put them in one location. But we got to play those games in those respective cities. And that's my two cents. Whether I was involved in the XFL, involved in the USFL, involved in whatever. To me, I think that's really important. I think that's been smart on behalf of of the league Um, because you do have to take into account not so much ratings, but you have to take you you have to take care uh, into account um, giving that fan something locally to invest in, to be passionate about, not to watch on TV, to go and experience it, you know, and I think that's also why it was so important and why from a 2.0 perspective, this was critical to have the opera outside of Seattle and St. Louis, which did a really good job crowd wise of filling the lower bowl really at both places. But when there was an opportunity to play in an MLS stadium that seated 22,000 people, let me tell you something, man, that DC defenders crowd, they weren't kidding around. And I sit there and I try to imagine that rabid fan base, not, not being able to attend their game, right? And I feel that way for every city. So I think that part of it's really, really important. I agree that, you know, even within these diehard football fans, you got some people that are just fans of football. They don't care what the league is. They're going to support it, right? They're I'm going to watch it. They're going to watch it, absolutely. Now we're seeing segments of even diehard fans. They're now, they're either in the trenches of USFL fan 
or they're an XFL fan, which is kind of interesting because we've always been clamoring for more football. Now we have all the football yeah. we could ever dream of, and now we are going to our own corner, so to so to speak. That tribalism, yeah. you know, if you will. Yeah. But it is the knock that's been against the USFL, and I, and I know this is an XFL show, and but there's a yeah, lot of my sure. listeners that are fans of both, so we're it's not a shot, but it's been the one thing that's been. When hearing the drone and you couldn't even hear fans drowning out this drone, that was a, it was a great idea. The drone was a great idea. That was a, a but not without another, crowd noise. But you had to have something to drown it out. So also it became this talking point that people just beat, like beating a dead horse, just over and over. Yeah, those are the type of things that you know. Yeah, the Birmingham Stallions had a crowd, but also it looked like there was like a handful of people sprinkling others. That even on the broadcast. Whether you can go in and tangibly sit there, watch a game, you know, see it live. Well, even on the broadcast, mm -hmm. it kind of did impact. You know, that's the one thing, you know, I, I don't yeah. try to bash the league or anything. I know it's more expensive for the XFL to be doing what they're doing, especially coming out of a pandemic. And we now mm -hmm. there's a new wave of thinking, you know, we got to save money because we don't know what the next thing's going to pop up or a hub that if there were to be an outbreak of something, we can quarantine people in a different way where I'll, you know, you know sure. get it. But even the USFL has acknowledged they have to do a little bit more now because they have these other hubs popping up where they're putting what two teams in each city. Mm -hmm. Obviously they need to do something because that's also a loss of revenue that at the gate. And it is. It, it you've got to have yeah. people buying in. Like you said, why am I going to buy a Jersey or a t-shirt or a baseball cap, whatever it might be. For a team like we just saw with the Bandits, the Tampa Bay Bandits, mm -hmm. where a Tampa Bay team never played in Tampa, and then the next year they're rebranded as the Memphis Showboats. So, not that that can't happen in the XFL. We already saw teams get shifted from the New York Guardians to the yeah. you know Orlando Guardians, but these are going to still play. They were at least in the, in the market, and I think we're seeing issues as to why there's no teams playing, whether it's XFL or USFL in the New York metropolitan area. There obviously are issues with leases to get venues. Sure. So that's well, why we're living for everybody too. Players, players included. It's, I mean, I moved down from New York for a reason, you know, I mean, the weather is a big perk here in Florida, no yeah. doubt, but I mean, there are significant differences with just taxes. And I think oh. that's a big reason why the league is placed in Texas no state income tax. Why there are three teams in Texas because we know that it's the game check of where the mm -hmm. games play that impacts whether you're going to get taxed. But there's another state. Florida has a team, no state income tax. Obviously, it's all factored in. Anyway, I'm kind of going on a rant here. <laughs> no, no, you're good. And, and, let me, and let me bring something up to that point because I'm not familiar with what they did 2.0 and I'm not familiar with what they're going to do. I know where the teams are all housed there in Arlington and all that. But like the first time around, if you were on the coaching staff at L.A., Chicago, or New York, we actually were given housing stipends because we couldn't afford to live. Like, we were given housing stipends. You know, Birmingham, Orlando, you know, they weren't, you know, and a variety of the other teams, Memphis, all that. But you had to because it was the only way you could, you could pull the thing off. And I think the other thing that's important, too, is you, L.A. is an overcrowded market. New York's an overcrowded market. Too expensive areas, just get out. I think that's smart. But look, San Antonio doesn't have professional football, right? Houston does, but the Houston 
market and how that was received the first time, that was a no-brainer, man. I mean, that was an absolute no-brainer. In fact, the game, the last game that was played in that stadium in the XFL that we had was the first week they opened the upper bowl at, at the stadium where the Houston Cougars play. So obviously, and again, you know what this really goes back to, Mike? The onus falls upon the individual organization to put forth a winner, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you want people to pay attention, win. You want people to come and celebrate it, win, you know, and and that's going to trump everything else. So, and again, I go back to player evaluation, the quarterback that you select. Obviously, there's factors like staying healthy and, you know, all those sorts of things. But you want to get the crowds to come in, play in reasonable capacity stadiums, put together a good product, and they'll come. They will enjoy it, too, because it's a, it's a really, really good product. So you mentioned stadiums, and I just were waiting for so long to get the Vegas Vipers stadium, right? That was just kind of a debacle there, <laughs> a little bit of a mess. And <laughs> for whatever reason, it sounds like Davis just did not want them at Allegiant. And it doesn't matter. It was too huge of a venue anyway, like you said. This, yeah. like this idea of how like the Guardians were playing at MetLife, when you were drawing 17,000, I was in there, even with 17,000 people with plenty of people shoulder to shoulder in the lower bowl where we were, you felt like mm-hmm. you were alone. You felt like you yeah. were in a ghost town. So I don't think that is bad that they're not at a legion. I know some people, well, this Cashman field is going to be a, a different situation. It's, it's a minor league baseball field. You know, obviously they have a newer ballpark, but it's been converted for yeah. a soccer. I don't, the league is talking about possibly, all right, well, you know, we're targeting 8,000 fans, even though it seats just over 9,000. I mean, yeah, we want smaller venues, but if they don't put temporary seating on that one side, how weird is that going to impact an environment? You know, so, I mean, again, we have to see how it all plays out. It's all a little early, but we're only weeks now. We don't even have a month anywhere. We're just weeks. So, and I'm not seeing you have answers, but it's just kind of funny that you were mentioning, like, I agree. I was like, oh, I'm a soccer guy too, you know, because I played in college. That was my sport. I yeah. came from high school that didn't have football. So I was like, you know, a college athlete, you know, captain of my soccer team. Heck, we even won a, a conference championship. So, you know, but the, the, this is not a soccer show. But I'm, <laughs> I'm even like a lot of diehard soccer people, like, don't put football in our soccer stadiums. I'm of the other thing, like, why not? These soccer teams have been waiting to have tenants to make the additional money. How soccer first started out in this country to play in NFL stadiums. Now they can kind of draw. Okay. So the turf gets tore up, but the environment is so much better. Get out of the MetLife's get out of, you know, the Alamo dome is pretty big, but the reality is Texas football is a religion there. Literally it it is. So the having three teams there and playing in larger venues, so it doesn't seem to be that much of a concern because it's not what you're seeing in week one, two, and three. It's hopefully what you're going to see down the line and if you're already locked in. But, you know, I know you guys have got to be somewhat discussing broadcasts. And I don't know to mm-hmm. what extent from your role as an analyst. Yeah. How do you see that type of venue of Cashman Field with the Vipers? How do you think that's going to come across? Well, the first question I would ask, can you put Skycam in it? Because, you know, we're going to have Skycam on all on all of these broadcasts. And so 
there's there are, there are some complications when you have to cable that thing up with the pulley system and the whole nine yards and and uh so that's one question that obviously has been answered or they would not be playing there no i don't know to me sometimes i feel like the more intimate it is potentially the more advantages you may have uh also dependent upon how they strategically set it up right um are they able to enclose in some way shape or form can they keep the sound and the noise and the everything from you know getting out of of the stadium and i don't know what the answer to that question is i know what the answer to that question is in dc um because <laughs> though uh the, the that place was rocking uh last year and it was funny because i had them twice in the first five weeks and both at dc but I, I do think it is, you know, the, the the venue will make a difference. The more you win, the more people show up. And the more people that show up, all of a sudden, the venue isn't so much what matters. It's the atmosphere that matters. Because if people are dialed in and they're invested and there's a reason to go, right, and they're just loving every minute of it, ultimately, at the end of the day, I think you always hear this phrase in, this, in the sport of football is winning cures all woes. So whatever concerns you might have, whatever trepidation, whatever, well, I don't know. Um, if you put a good product on the field, it won't matter. Just win, baby. Wasn't that just from Ellen Davis? You just win, baby. Uh, well, it is. And you know what's funny about that with Allegiant Stadium is I asked somebody, because I actually don't know. I haven't looked it up. I haven't checked into it, you know, but UNLV used to play at the old Silver Bowl. And that's where we had, that's where the Las Vegas Outlaws played. And it's on it's the, the very, very, very eastern side of, of Las Vegas. Um, it. But it, it held 32,000 people. It was the perfect place for a league like this. But I don't even know if it's still in existence. So they might have torn it down. I don't know. This you is what all down. the reports, this is what all the reports are telling us about Sam Boyd. That's what they call it now. Okay. Well, so I'm, let me tell you how old I am. Sam Boyd Stadium, all right? I just called it the Silver Bowl. Before it was Sam Boyd Stadium, it was the Silver Bowl. Like going back to Randall Cunningham. Oh, good. But so Sam Boyd, so when they were building Allegiant, whatever Mm -hmm. contracts, whatever agreements that were coming in to bring the Raiders to Las Vegas to build that stadium, Mm -hmm. in in the UNLV, came into agreement to play at Allegiant, so essentially whatever was signed is that Sam Boyd is as good as done legally can't be played at. This is what we're reading. It doesn't matter who, you know, whether it's been what media outlets been putting out. Everyone comes mm-hmm. to the same thing that it legally cannot be played at. The stadium is still sitting there. It has not been demoed, but for whatever reason, it can't be used. It's, it, it's, it's like, it doesn't exist. It's like a ghost town, essentially. Like how if you go to those old Western villages, it supposedly just, but it's just nothing. So that's a shame. Yeah. It just seems like it's a loss, but you know, Davis, when he came in, was it Mark Davis? I'm trying to make sure I had the right Davis now because you know, the father had passed away years ago, but seems like he knew what he was doing to essentially hold the power, you know, the, the Trump card and, you know, unfortunately, that does put the XFL in. You're either going to play there and you're going to pay whatever money that mm-hmm. he's, you know, going to request to play there. 
or you're going to have to look for other options. And that's kind of where we knew, you know, fan base or whatever, just people knew it wasn't going to be in an ideal situation. But that's what you get when you announce your your cities before you have a venue secured too. So that did not play in the league's (laughs) best interest to go about it how they did. So, I mean, lessons learned, right? No, we're not here to take shots. I mean, you know, but the reality is like, okay, the third iteration, you think you wouldn't make some what seem to be rookie mistakes. And I think that's been a knock against the XFL here. Like we've been talking about, you know, oh, they're behind on this, behind on that. Okay. You gotta, you know, there's new ownership. They've never owned a league. So, but even though with all of the football people with Russ Brandon and the Doug Whaley's and all these people that are in these, it just seems like, well, it shouldn't be such a rookie, but when the owners are making the final decision, they're the one side of the checks. They are going to do what they do. No different than how we had heard. The reason why they played a Met life in 2020 was because that's where Vince McMahon wanted to play in New York. I'm not playing in no small stadium. And even though it looked like a ghost town, again, come back to whatever, so some people there, and there's a soccer stadium, by the way, right down the road, Red Bull Arena. That's it. That I also had season tickets to. Oh man, yeah. I told you I was a soccer guy, and that seats uh, approximately twenty five, twenty six thousand, and it has that. It's not a dome, obviously, but it has an enclosure that it's holds got the overhang. Yeah, soccer specific stadiums were designed to help with their broadcast, the sound of everything. And it literally would have been a perfect venue for I know. the New York guardians or whoever. Now the New Jersey generals that are, that are exist, but for whatever reason, it sounds like both leagues are struggling and that's why there's not a team. But like you said, it's, it's oversaturated there. Anyway, the cost of everything is just ridiculous. Oh. So I think at this point we just have to move on and evolve with these leagues just trying to survive. That's really what well, this is about at this point. Yeah. And and get if you can get past two seasons, if you can get to where you're having an expansion talk, all right, where you're getting into other markets, like and sometimes sometimes I use the arena football league as a great example of this. So around nineteen ninety probably nineteen ninety-nine, two thousand was when the Arena Football League was at the the height of its of of really it was becoming mainstream. And then they decided to develop Arena Football 2, which was like a triple A minor league to the Arena Football League. And they were so smart. So I was the head coach of the Tennessee Valley Vipers and we were in Huntsville, Alabama. And basically what what the Arena Football League acknowledged and recognized and it was really smart was they targeted markets where you're the only game in town, right? I mean, it is, you you are, so for example, a, a city that I would use in this same vein would be somebody like Portland, like a city like Portland, right? Where big, yet at the same time, small, really no football outside of Portland State to speak of, right? And you could be a like, I mean, you'd win a popularity contest, right? When the Arena Football League had done a really good job of that, Grand Rapids, I mean, they packed the house. There's nothing else there, right? Where I was in Huntsville, Alabama, fire marshals were kicking people out of the building, right? There's, we were treated like we were the Green Bay Packers. And 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 you could go across Milwaukee uh, uh, was, was another one. Um, you know, and I'm trying to think back so long ago at some of these teams, but 
you look at where they were, right? And you look at what the competition was for an entertainment sports value. And that's where I think that you got to continue to target those types of places, right? Like if you could, um, you know, if you could find yourself, oh, I'm trying to think of what would be a, a, a just a, a, an example that, that could be good. Because I think, I think San Antonio, they did a good job of that. You don't really have any competition. As you mentioned, you're, you're, you're Texas, you're football crazy, right? It's, it's nuts. Um, but like, even like, what if you did something in Louisville, Kentucky? Or, or, you know, some of these spots where they love football, don't really have anything else going on that time of year. Um, there, there's other places where if you can get past a year or two and you're starting to say, okay, this thing's starting to grow. We're starting to get access to better players. There's more interest in coming in. More revenue is going to start to get generated. You start to really target some of those places. You're like, listen, we, we could be the show in this market. And, um, and I'm hoping that's what it gets to because, you know, everybody can go to a game in Los Angeles of any sport they want to go to, of whatever level they want to go to. Could do the same thing in the state of Texas, same thing in the state of Georgia, same thing in the state of Alabama. For the most part, the same, same thing in Florida. But, you know, that was one of the reasons why the Iowa Barnstormers just kicked ass in the Arena League for so long. I mean, that place, I played there. I coached in that building. I mean, those fans, you would have thought, you would have thought that was literally the Dallas Cowboys there, man. And that's how they embraced it. That's how they thought of it. And I think you can do that with outdoor football too, if you can keep this thing going. So obviously there's a blueprint. I mean, it, indoor, outdoor, it, it's still football. I mean, it's, yes, it's a, yeah. you know, 11 yeah. versus, you know, obviously the other one's a smarter, it's an arena, mm-hmm. fewer players, but people are there to watch football. Yep. But where did it go wrong? So this, you know, there's a blueprint. So what went right in how to target, but where did it go wrong that these leagues like the XFL, the USFL also had to be very careful that they saw the arena game, saw so oh, much growth that it expanded in now in two different divisions. Where are they making the mistakes? C B A. The moment the Arena Football League went to a collective bargaining agreement, they doomed the league for the rest of eternity because the value of the franchises, what people were buying them for versus what they were worth was such a huge disparity. And those things are losing two, two and a half, three million dollars a year. And some of these franchises were selling for 12 million bucks. Wow. Is anybody doing the math here? Then, then you agreed to collectively bargain for the players, right? Because it used to be that, you know, you made a per game rate. There was a league minimum. There was a win bonus, right? And there were individual incentives. And then there, you know, so your, your, your weekly salary in the real league, it was, you got, I, I make this much per week. I make this much for a win bonus. I make this much for whatever individual incentives. I get fed and I get my housing during the course of the season. It was all sustainable. All right. Even with individual ownership, it was sustainable. And even if you were paying guys pretty decent money, then it was, oh, well, we should get this and we should get that. And there should be health insurance protections, which that part of it, I don't disagree with. That part of it, I completely agree. 
But what happened was, is now all of a sudden these guys are going on the open market. They know they're going to get, uh, they're going to get a retirement deal. They're going to get uh, health benefits year round, and they could go out on the open market and start negotiating their own contracts. Well, 2001, 2002, 2003, when this boom started to happen, you got quarterbacks making $175,000 a year for four months, hmm. right? And so you're looking at all the money that's going out the door. There was there was no way this was sustainable. And that's what ruined the Arena Football League. And it eventually was a house of cards that all came crashing down. Did the league and the game and the sport get better because there were better players were willing to play in it because now salaries are different? Yes, but you couldn't do it long term. And that was the issue. And, you know, one of the things about the XFL the first time around is, you know, you you got paid a good salary. You got your housing. You got a pretty big win bonus. All right. And 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 that and that was great. And then I think if they would have kept going along, you would have seen increases in those areas. And there were enough football. But listen, put it this way. There were enough football players and there are now. To where somebody says, I'm not doing that. Okay, there's the door. This guy who's lined up with 200 other people, he'll do it. And he's probably as good as you are. And so you have a little bit of leverage as a league where you don't necessarily have to cower to either the player's demands or a collective bargaining scenario or all of those sorts of things. You can pretty much dig your heels in, make sure that you're being fair with compensation. You can do all this and that. And then somebody says, well, that's not right. I'm not doing that. You're not paying me enough. Okay. That's fine. Go over there. And we'll get this guy to come on in. And um, there's no dearth of players to be able to have that mentality. Well, Tom, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the USFL is now unionized. They do, and they just ratified this offseason their CBA. And from what we understand is that this particular group, if you go to their website, it is backed by the Pennsylvania Steel Workers Union. Okay. If you go into the about section, it lists not only the USFL when they were trying to do that, the XFL is listed. So what do we see that's coming? We know it's on the horizon. Yeah. So it's going to be very similar. So the USFL. Well, it's got to be had, manageable. Right, got to be able to account for what's going out the door versus what's coming in the door, or you're not going to have a league. So, and the Arena Football League, by the way, at the height of all of this, had a television contract with NBC, and that still couldn't save it. Right, right. That's kind of that's because it did seem. Tom, I'm thinking back. I was coming out. I came out of college in 2002, and I remember I had season tickets I bought to the Rochester Mm -hmm. Brigade, which was in the Mm -hmm. Arena Football too. Sure. because I, you know, I was living in the Rochester area before I moved out to Connecticut briefly and worked in New York City. So what would that have been like? Two thousand. That had to be. Was that two thousand three? I think I had the season tickets. Okay, so that was after me being in AF two. Got it. Okay, got it. I believe it's two thousand three. Yeah, because I moved to Connecticut in, uh, I believe it was January, February of two thousand four. So it had to be two thousand three that I had my mm-hmm. season tickets to the Rochester Brigade. But um. I guess where was I going to go with this? I kind of got sidetracked trying to go down memory lane here a little bit. Um, yeah, I can't even recall. That's that. I have not done that on the show, but I've stumped myself. <laughs> and I just thank you. It's live. Thank you. That's yeah. what happens. <laughs> that, hey, trust me. It's it's part of television. It's part of radio. It's part of podcast. 
I, I will say this though. I think maybe, and this might, I might be able to help you. This might be the, the, the path you were going down is from a, from a, I'm not anti collective bargaining agreement or, or, or player unit or any of that. And just trust me. I mean, in my world of college football and recruiting, I'm dealing now with name, image, and likeness. All right. Right. Uh, the transfer report, all of these different things that have a direct tie to antitrust, right? They have a direct tie to, are we infringing on a, a player's ability to earn or this and that and blah, blah, blah. Well, that's all fine and dandy. The problem is if you're going to go down that path, you better be damn sure that the incoming revenue is going to cover the outgoing CBA. Because if it doesn't, you won't have a league. So whether it's player demands or I should be making this or I should be able to negotiate this, that's fine. But the market has to set itself according to what's coming in, right, the, the door, and then what's what's going out. And those are the things that would concern me a little bit because that was not addressed in any way. The thing got so far out of hand so quickly. And again, it is important to have health insurance for players and their families. It is important to be able to maybe set up a 401k through a, either a, a league uh, single entity property or the individual ownership of a, of a team. But when when the salaries are so vastly exceeding the ability to pay for them, it's a house of cards. I did remember where I was going with that. So eventually <laughs> it took me a second, not that I wasn't listening to you, but I no, it, it's fine. But I was trying to recall back to where you, you were right, NBC. They even had their own video games, like PlayStation. You know, you, you could buy video games for you know the arena football. It wasn't just sure. like indoor football. It was branded with the teams. Like the, I believe yeah. it was like the uh Orlando what was the rush team, Pats, whatever. Yeah, the head of the head, whatever rush. teams. Yeah. yeah. So it seemed very odd that there were agreements and deals in place where revenue was coming in, but like you said, you got to keep it in check. And I'm all about people have, having guaranteed protections. We've seen so much happen with the AAF, the XFL, sure. you know, these sure. people were always held, you know, were left holding the bag, not even knowing how they're getting home, trying to Absolutely. figure out their own things. I get it. There definitely has to be something in place in these players need it. But at the same time, these players are clamoring for a platform to showcase themselves. And I, what I do fear. And they got to be willing that, to give. A right. I, what I do fear is that if this happens too soon and if they get too hungry, not greedy. I don't think they're greedy yet because it's not going to be like National Football League, you know, yeah. revenue or incomes. I get that. But I, I think at some point we are already seeing it with the USFL and I believe we'll probably see it in the offseason with the XFL. So it's coming. And I think hopefully the league is seeing it now. Obviously, it just happened with the USFL. Yeah. And hopefully the XFL is able to plan for it and really start to think of what they got to do. I do see the league is very different with their focus on health. Mm-hmm. Just not only with the rules, everything we see, they're tied into riser mindset. They just announced their partnership or agreement the other last week and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I had a chance to have Dr. Uh, Troutwine on and talk about those type of things. So they clearly are very invested in their health. So mm-hmm. this type of thing, hopefully we don't see too much of, all right, well, we already got this. Now we need to try to always go for more and more and more. And that's right. what you need to protect yourself. But let's, 
let's also remember, let's get this league off the ground and keep this platform, not just right. for yourself, but for everyone that's coming from, you know, from behind you that wants yeah. the same opportunity and the same, pursuing the same dream. So that's my soapbox moment. And I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be anti-union because I'm not. No, I hear it's you. It's just like, let's try to have a realistic approach to this. Well, well, that's the thing. And like, and, and I've, and I've said this for a long time, nobody forces anybody to play this game. You, you, you make a choice whether or not you want to play. You also make a choice on whether or not you think right, wrong, or indifferent, you've been paid fairly or that you're going to be compensated fairly. Now, you know, there are a lot of players out there that have an overinflated opinion of their ability level, right? That's natural. But if, like, if I'm a league and, and I'm looking to the future and I'm saying, okay, we do want to have safety, we do want to have protective measures for our players. And we're going to come up with a way where we're going to create an opportunity to set up a, 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 an investment opportunity through a 401k. We are going to set up um, health insurance for the player and, and, and their family. And here's what you're going to be paid. And here is what your incentives could potentially be, or here is what your win bonus is going to be. This is our league. This is what you're going to get. And that's how it's going to be for everybody. You can either choose to play in it or not. And I think that's one of the ways where you can be a little more equitable. You can have a little more coverage for your players, a few more protective measures, a little more security right? But not break the bank, not get into individualized contract negotiations with every player every year. And they're all trying to go out on the open market. You sign one-year contracts with every player every year, every player. If You know what? If you want to become a free agent, you, you become a free agent at the end of this year, but you might go to another team, but the rules are still going to be the same because the league's running it, right? So nobody's the, forcing their hand. The only issue I see with that, I agree. But now with multiple leagues, we're seeing that kind of. Sure. There's competition out there. Now it's like, okay, well, we just saw several USFL quarterbacks jump ship. Even then, they had their starting jobs secured, right? There was no way that we thought Kyle Slaughter was going to leave, but he did. And he's now in Arlington. And so if you don't lock them up, they're all going to walk. Or they're all going to try to use both leagues. So that's hard. There's no easy answers. There's no easy answers here. Yeah, there's no easy answers. And at the end of the day, it comes down to financial survival, television contracts, and being able to account for what's coming in versus what's going out. And you're not going to please everybody. And it's not going to be. It's not going to be something. These leagues aren't meant to get rich, right? This isn't what this is about. This is opportunity opportunity to make a living as you put it earlier opportunity to potentially advance and make that nfl active roster all of those sorts of things and all the while making a really good living making a really good salary you know and doing well you're playing the sport you love and you hope that you are hungry right and that you're not motivated by just dollar signs and this and that you're motivated by i've got to get seen i've got to play well i've got to get back into that nfl training camp and um and hopefully most guys will look at it that way well, I know we have gone over that 20 to 40 minutes that I told you I usually do. So I'm very appreciative of the time you're giving oh, me. So my pleasure. I, I would like to just try to ask one more question here. Yeah. So when this opportunity came back, you know, presented itself for you to come back to the 
be involved as an analyst in broadcast for the XFL mm-hmm. here for 2023. Was it a no brainer for you? Was it just like, yeah, I had unfinished business. What, what was it that kind of being like made you want to do this? I have such a soft spot in my le- in my heart for these types of leagues. I appreciate it. I have felt it. I've lived it as a player and a coach, as a personnel guy. I know it's not easy that um, the day-to-day challenges of trying to – so I've been a part of three expansion franchises in a row. One is a head coach in AF2. One is a quarterback's coach and player personnel director at Los Angeles in the XFL. And my third one was the Dallas Desperados in the AFL for the Dallas Cowboys. All right. So I feel like I got a pretty strong background in how to start something up from scratch, how difficult it is to do it. And I just have such a great appreciation for it. I almost feel like I'm broadcasting, but I feel like I'm, I'm part of it, you know, because I have been. And it's, and it's, uh, I take a, there is a point of pride. I often joke about, you know, my, my XFL championship ring is my, is my eBay retirement one day when I finally go broke and I got to have some, you know, I got to get another 50 bucks to live on. I throw my, my XFL ring on, the, on, on eBay and then that'll be, that'll be the end of it. That'll, that, that'll be that. But until then, there's only about 50 of those in existence. And, um, and that's the thing that's interesting about this. There's been three of these now, right? But there's only been one champion. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I mean, when you think about that, there's only been one champion. And as I referenced Jonathan Heimbach, who's the offensive line coach at Arlington, uh, when everything got announced and our broadcast crews got announced and the ESPN deal got announced, it was about two and a half weeks ago. And he tweeted out and he copied me. He goes, one and only champs, baby. And, and, and I started, you know, I take, I take pride on that. And, and I want, to be honest with you, I want these other coaching staffs and these players and, the, and these this and that. I don't care if it's junior college. I don't care if it's the BCS national championship. I don't care if it's a college football playoff. It's hard to win a championship at any level, anywhere with any group of individuals in the greatest team sport ever. So, um, and, and I have from a recruiting perspective and a player evaluation perspective, I have a, I have a pretty busy off season because I'm not just working from August to January. I have to then transition into, into uh, recruiting. And so, now, you know, you add back in the three days of travel every weekend that you didn't normally have in the spring. Well, I didn't even give a second thought. I mean, it was just, it's it's too fun. The access is too fun. The open mics, the inside the locker room. The, I mean, it just, it's everything a fan. I think, to be honest with you, it's everything a fan would love to see in college football and they never will. That's really what this whole thing comes down to. And I mean, how many people, how many people think about this? I had a situation with Kevin Gilbride in 2020. I'll never forget it. New York at DC. And he's on like his own 46 yard line, fourth and three, and he goes for it. All right. And I immediately walk up to him within 10 seconds of the, I don't even know if they've set the change yet going the other way. Mike in his face. Coach, explain your reasoning for going for that. He gave me a look. I thought, I, I thought he might punch me out right there on the sideline. But he knows what he signed on for. He knew he knew what it was. But can you imagine having that moment with Nick Saban? Can you imagine from a fan perspective 
having that type of scenario with Ryan Day at Ohio State. I mean, like, think about those things. Those are the the a Bill Belichick. The, Could you the Bill Belichick? Can you imagine? Like, everybody wants to. They want to hear what's happening between plays. They want to hear coach to player live. They want to hear a coach's reaction to a play call he made that backfired. They want to hear from. I had to go to Cardell. Cardell Jones through an awful interception. I went right up to him and I'm saying, what did you see on that play? Right. The fans want to, and imagine if they could get that in college football and they can't, and they can here, which is the whole point of the thing, I guess. Like your role, mm-hmm. anyone like you are so important to the overall XFL experience. I, I can't speak for every fan, every viewer, mm-hmm. but it does take guts to go up there with that mic at that particular oh. moment. But you want to know what? You're asking the question that everyone's already thinking. Correct. So we're, we want the answer. So, like, the fact that you're doing it is you're doing us all a huge favor because it's only adding to the experience, whether you're sitting at home. I mean, it almost makes you not want to go to a game so you can get more of that. that. You know what I'm saying? So, it it starts to create a a bit of a dilemma for a fan, even if you're in market. Well, heck, do I want to get this experience at home? Because it is so cool, so awesome. And it it is just opening up the curtains, like you said. Well, so I'm glad that you love it, and that's what you oh, why do. you're doing it. I know some people are probably just looking for opportunity, whatever. But like, yeah. you, this is your second time oh, around. I'm, I'm like, you already knew. Yeah, I, I know you were. But that's yeah. why I had to ask it. Yeah. I, but I had to let yeah. you say it for yourself. And I'll be you know, the first. Let me tell you something, Mike. I'm not kidding around. The hardest I have ever worked as a, a broadcast. Now I've been a field analyst and a booth analyst, but. On my ABC crew for college football Saturdays at 3.30 or noon or whatever it is, I've been a field analyst for nine years, okay? And I'm giving perspective almost like a three-man booth, and I'm in different spots of the field, but all I'm doing is the game, right? This XFL experience in 2020 was the hardest I have ever worked, studio or remote television, ever in 18 years. There were a couple of times my Apple Watch, I ended up, eclipsing 20,000 steps in a game because what happened was everything was so spur of the moment, right? So Diana Rossini is handing a lot of the interview and the, those types of things. I was doing interview slash let's get into some of the X's and O's of this. So for example, Jim Zorn's at Seattle and I go stand right next to him and he's calling the thing and you're hearing it on air. And then I'd say, Coach, what can we expect to see here? He goes, okay, we're going to motion from left formation to the right formation. We've got inside zone. The quarterback does have an opportunity to pull it. Well, that's like live real action. Well, let's just say that happened, right? They run the inside zone. The guy fumbles. And let's just say hypothetically the guy from D.C. scoops it, runs that back for 40 yards and scores. Now, what I would have to do was wherever I was at at that moment, I had to literally sprint to wherever that player was, wherever that celebration was, or to wherever it led to the opposite sideline. And I had to get there because I had to get the reaction before we got off to the next two or three plays. And this was constant for four quarters. It was 
I have never been a part in, in, in 18 years, and I've served in a variety of capacities here at, here at ESPN. I've never been so challenged as a broadcaster. I probably have never been so fulfilled as a broadcaster. And I've never been more exhausted as a broadcaster than I was in those five weeks. But the whole point was what you said. We've got to be able to give that fan and that viewer that experience of seeing and hearing that reaction, seeing and hearing that explanation. Because a lot of times that's what it was. Why'd you call this? Why'd you go for it on fourth down on your seven-yard line? You're up by 10. You could have kicked the field goal. Like, it was awkward. Sometimes it was very, very uncomfortable, but it was necessary to do the job. And I'll tell you, there were moments, like, I would be like, dude, I I hope that doesn't happen again. I hope I don't have to run into that scenario again. And then, of course, invariably, I would. And, and, you know, without naming names, I, I don't have to do that. But there were coaches in that league that embraced it and were a pleasure. And then there were coaches in that league at that time that wanted nothing to do with it and made our jobs very, very difficult. But that's that's what you embrace. You, you embrace that. I embrace that sometimes with halftime and postgame interviews in college football. Yeah, it's just it's part of the deal. But when you're so invasive like we were, you got to expect some of the reactions that we got. So is that why you're in the booth this time around? It was just too much running. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I got to be honest with you. You know, I've, like I said, I've been, I've been very, very fortunate over the last 18 years. Very fortunate. And I've been, I've always been one of those guys that if they asked me to do something, I was going to say yes. Hey, Tom, can you host this uh, studio show? Yep. Even if I didn't know what I was doing, I was going to figure it out. Hey, Tom, can you you serve as a reporter in this role? Yep. Could you be a host on this show, but at the same time, kind of also partake in being an analyst? Yep, I can do that. And that's kind of how I I, I built my career. That's also what led into my field analyst role. I was the first guy we did it with uh, in our company. Um, And I've been, like I said, I just completed my ninth year doing it. And that that role has evolved. And and I was kind of the guinea pig for it, right? So then the uh, 2.0 rolls around and, and Greg and I had already, um, you know, been working together for the previous four seasons or three seasons. Uh, four, actually, we had just completed four in college football together. Um, and I'd known Steve for a number of years. And so it was just kind of we were the ABC crew. That was kind of the natural. They needed a field analyst. Um, it was going to be probably a pretty big undertaking, probably not something you want to put maybe a lesser experienced field analyst in with all of the access and all of the things that were going on. I mean, it was, dude, it was a three ring circus. I'm not organized, but I mean, it was constant. And then, you know, I've, I've bounced from the field to the booth for a long time now. And, and I had actually gone to our company and said, you know, I had just signed a new three-year deal. And I said, you know, I'd, I'd really love the opportunity to do this league again, but I'd like to do it from the booth. And I, I kind of felt like I would earned that. And very fortunately, you know, they're providing me the opportunity to do it. And, you know, so now, um, you know, Harry Douglas will take the field analyst role with our crew and stormy Juan and Tony, who will be our sideline reporter. And then um, John Schriffen is going to be our play-by-play guy. And, um, and it's going to be a, 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 once again, as you embark on something new, you embark on an expansion franchise, it's it's going to be an adventure. I have not worked on a remote event with any of those three people yet. 
So that part's going to be a lot of fun. And I, I, I'm not going to lie. I, I, there's a part of me that hopes I can help John. I can help uh, Stormy. I can help Harry. I can help, you know, others on other crews with the chaos that they're about to embark on and, and try and kind of help them navigate the space because, you know, I did go through it. I have been through it. And, and, um, and uh, so, you know, let's, let's hope this thing works out well this time. Well, I think we're all hoping that, you know, not just from, you know, you guys from the networks, I know the league is, I know all of us fans, we want to get through the season. We want to see a season two. So hopefully yeah. it just goes you know, without any... I need somebody to take my title away, Mike. <laughs> Somebody's going to have to come and take it because I'm not. I'm not giving taking that ring off my finger. Well, right. I mean, you you earned it. <laughs> I mean, heck, that's right. It's it is hard to believe, like you mentioned, that the third iteration and only one champion. And then we understand know, kind right? of, but it's in it's just so long. It just it, that doesn't seem right, but it is. It's it's correct. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy, man. It really is. But it's going to be a blast, and we're going to have a lot of fun doing it. And hopefully, like I said, so many of the things that 2.0 got right and then got interrupted, I hope all of that carries over and we just, you know, kick ass throughout the rest of the thing. Tom, this has been an absolute pleasure. And, I mean, I you give me way more time than I anticipated. So oh, I really appreciate Like I told you, I'm passionate about it. So it's, it's my pleasure. And, um, you know, we'll have to continue to try and maybe do some check-ins and things as the season gets started and maybe catch up, do a little weekly review or do something we can try to do. Um, but uh, more than willing to, to do it. Have you back. Touch yeah. yeah. That would yeah. be awesome. I mean, obviously, you know, we see it as a fan or even as a show because, I mean, I'm new to whatever medium, people call it media, medium, whatever podcasting is. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to look at things differently and this is all learning experience for me, but it's kind of, really cool to connect with people and get different insights. I mean, even the stuff behind the scenes that my listeners don't get to see or, or, sure. or, or aware of, it's just kind of cool how I'm connecting with people and the insight that I'm, I'm gaining. And it's, it's really cool to get this in an audio form for everyone to hear just your experience. And it's, you know, you don't think of it and it, that's why it's so crucial to get somebody like you. So, like I said, it, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure and I would love to have you back. You bet, man. Really enjoyed it. Um, and looking forward to the season. I know you and your listeners and your, and your fans are are as well. So we're going to get this thing kicked off uh, weekend of February 18th. Should be a lot of fun. Right. Before you go, can yeah. you just share with our listeners where they could follow you along this journey that, you know, if you're on social media and whatnot? Yeah. Uh, at Tom Luganbill on Twitter. Um, at Tom Luganbill on Instagram. Um, I'm on Facebook, of course, as well. I don't do Snapchat or TikTok because I'm not a teenager. Um, although do I monitor it because I have two teenagers. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I've never been a, a mat, uh, I'm not a big self promoter on, on social media, but I, I, I do post from time to time. But I think a lot of the stuff that if I get dialed in with social media and the XFL, I think a lot of what I will be doing is not so much, oh, hey, we're going to be broadcasting this game here. But when we get on site, just, Maybe trying, whether it's through photography, whether it's through videos, with just trying to take in the sights, right? The sounds, the scenics, the the environment, and then maybe share that more than anything else. So people can have a really good feel for, you know, if they haven't been to a game yet or they're not familiar with the environment and how the thing looks is, you know, maybe kind of give them a little bit of a peek of that. And hopefully that will get people to... 
maybe have a little interest or, you know, spark their interest to say, Hey, I'm going to go check out one of those things. Well, definitely. Well, perfect. Thank you, Tom. You bet, man. Thank you. I enjoyed my conversation with Tom. Despite discussing an array of topics, we barely touched on to his XFL experiences. I find it interesting how many people look back on XFL 1.0 with such distaste. While people like Tom can look beyond the broadcast presentation and have fond football memories. Yes, XFL 1.0 failed. Yet, oddly, it was successful. Those innovations ushered in a lot of what we see and enjoy today. Honestly, we could have talked for hours. I am grateful for the time Tom shared and his willingness to return during the upcoming season to share more of his insight. I am looking forward to it. This week, we do not have any fan line messages. If you have an XFL-related comment, question, or hot take and would like it to be heard on the show, reach out to the fan line by calling 863-TALK-XFL or 863-825-5935. Doing so, your message could be included in an upcoming episode. All good things must come to an end. This concludes another episode of Player 54 Podcast. As always, I am interested in receiving your feedback. So do not be a stranger. Reach out to let me know your thoughts. And if you do so, your comments might just make it on the show. But before you go, do not forget to subscribe and rate the show on your platform or choice. One last thing. If you're interested in checking out our friends over at Royal Retros by 503 Sports, do not forget to click on the link in the show's description and notes, as well as that sweet code, Let's Talk XFL, for 10% off your purchase. Thank you for tuning in. Till next time, cheers. Thank you for tuning into today's show. Don't forget to subscribe and rate Player 54 Podcast on your platform of choice. You can follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Player 54 Podcast. Do you have a question or topic you would like to have addressed on the show? Message the show via social media or send an email to player54podcast at gmail.com.